Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. If you're a PM or a designer, you've probably read the book Sprint. Or if you're like me, you've used it when you absolutely needed to break out of a rut and figure out what to do next. So I'm really excited to have Braden Coetz on the show today. He's an author on that New York Times bestselling book, Sprint, How to Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days. He's also now a co-founder at Range. He was a design partner at GV and a designer at Google. And in this conversation, we get into feedback, critiques, and how to be more effective collaborating as part of a team. I hope you enjoy it. Brayden, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here because we're going to talk about one of my favorite things, which is feedback, but specifically about critiques for product teams. So I'd love to hear where did your focus on critiques come from? I'm guessing it has something to do with your background as a designer, but specifically within a product team and maybe what does a good critique look like? And we can kind of go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I think my interesting critiques happened relatively late in my design career. I was reading this book, Creativity Inc., about how they do things at Pixar. And earlier in my career, I I had really started to understand the power of user studies as a way to shorten these OODA loops, these observe, orient, decide, and act. So typically in waterfall development, you would plan a big product, design it, launch it, and see how the market reacts, which will, of course, give you a very accurate view of of what's happening with your solution. And then the whole user experience education that I had taught me that there are much faster OODA loops that you can use that involve customers, things like prototyping and bringing people in for user studies. That was my like soapbox for a long time to talk to teams about how to use those methods of design to shorten your OODA loops. And then as I was reading the um, Creativity Inc. book, it struck me that Pixar is in an interesting position because they can't use any of those traditional techniques. You can't like prototype a movie and then kind of launch it to some customers and, and have them imagine what it's like to, to experience the movie. So then they had to use a, a different technique in order to make themselves faster in order to do this type of iteration. And they used critique quite heavily in the company. And then I started, started to understand that when critique is done well, it is the tightest, fastest OODA loop that you can do in your company. It's a way to take your ideas, test them, and make them better without having to step outside your company at all. So it's it's tremendously valuable when it's done right. So I think what's interesting is that I've, I've heard and actually had people on the show to talk about critiques specifically within a, a team of designers. So like if, a, if the design function gets together, you know, for example, our team gets together, I think once a week and does critique or design crit as they call it. But we don't typically talk about critique as a product team or within product management. So curious how you think about critique in that context. Yeah, I mean, critique in a lot of ways is just us making our decisions better with with feedback. I mean, it's just a fancy word for feedback, really. And I think as groups, we we need to learn how to do that well. We don't all just show up in the workplace knowing how to ask for feedback, how to present our work in a way that makes it easy for people to give feedback, to be able to listen to someone and help them give feedback. And, and often outside the design community, we don't even have any processes or, or rituals for building those types of feedback loops. So yeah, I think critique happens all the time. For example, engineers have a process of code reviews. You'll make a pull request, someone will look at your work and review it. And that usually happens not in person, not everyone's sitting at a flipboard looking at cool design artifacts. They're just looking at code, but it's very much a critique. And, and engineers have also figured out all the all the core parts that make that feedback productive. Mm-hmm. How do you at Range, um, the company that you're a co-founder of now, how do you guys handle that um, within your product teams? Like, Do you have specific rituals that you've created to help critique not only the sort of specific work, pro- the, the what's, but also the incoming problems that people are solving? Yeah, we do. I mean, we do certainly do code reviews and we do design reviews uh, as well. I think the 
the core part of it, like when I think about the places where I've worked where, you know, the feedback is just feels broken, it usually starts with people feeling very reluctant to show their work. I think designers are probably the worst at this, will hide in some corner and try to work on a design for months before wanting to show it to anyone. Or when people do show it to to others, they're very defensive about feedback given or they're avoidant about feedback. So defensive sounds like, oh, I designed this this way for this reason. And avoidant sounds like, okay, and then ignoring ignoring the feedback. <laughs> I've, I've just run into both recently. So yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> so, so, so I think of this stuff like... Um, a little bit like a doctor looking at symptoms, you want to figure out, okay, so those are the symptoms. Someone is reluctant to show work or they're defensive or avoidant, like, but what's the underlying condition? So why are people behaving that way? And usually when when that's what's going wrong in your feedback process, there's some there's some issues kind of lower down in the foundations of what it means to be a team and what it means to be a person in the workplace. That in my mind triggers psychological safety and building a growth mindset on your team. How do you help your teams build that that trust? Because I think you're right that vulnerability and being able to sort of put your work out there for feedback and to be receptive of it is really wrapped up in how you are as a team. Yeah, absolutely. I think the foundation of being a team is helping each other. And in order to help each other, you have to ask each other for help. And in order to ask each other for help, you have to be vulnerable and say, here's a thing that I can't do alone. In order to do that, you need to have the psychological safety to know that people aren't going to jump on you and point out your faults and criticize you for them. We build that every day. I think psychological safety as a manager or anyone on a team is a, is a, a thing you have to show with your actions and words all the time. And it starts with understanding the people on your team are people first before they're teammates or cogs in a giant machine making things. Um, they're people. And so one of my favorite ways to do this is actually to start every meeting by going around the room and just asking a simple question of how is everyone? How's everyone doing? Um, particularly in these days, more than ever, it shows that um, it gives everyone a little bit of space. It shows that we care about each other. And I, I learned so much about my team by asking that simple question. And it also has these side benefits that if, if people speak at least once in a meeting, they're more likely to speak up later in the meeting as well. So it can make the, the meeting a bit more inclusive. Right. How kind of on that topic, I'm curious what your advice is for teams who find themselves newly remote or more remote than they were before and how to, you know, this is, that's a good suggestion on going around making sure people are participating, but I'm curious about doing feedback or critique or even really brainstorming remotely and like how you think about helping teams do that. I think brainstorms are one of the hardest things to do remote, but what I've learned from doing design sprints is that the typical way you think about brainstorms in Hollywood, sort of like everyone shouting out ideas and like, oh, that's great. And then, and then building on it, that is actually not as productive as kind of doing a brainstorm in phases where people have individual time to think about ideas and then time to share those ideas, the, the best ones with the group, and then repeat that. So then you can actually build on each other's ideas. So doing it in a much more structured way actually is, is more productive. And that works okay, remote, uh, you just have to build your, a little bit more facilitation into it. So that might sound like, okay, everyone take five minutes and write down as many solutions as you can think to of, the, of this problem. Five minutes goes by, then you ask everyone, okay, read your top one or two ideas that you have, we'll all listen to them. And then we'll repeat that process two or three times, maybe we'll vote on on the answers. That's all stuff you can do in a Google Doc or a spreadsheet or, or, or anything like that. And I think in general, when you're working together on, on critique or, or design work, when you're remote, it just requires a little bit more facilitation, you know? You can't always see people's heads nodding, you can't always hear people laughing, you can't read the room as well. And so it 
often requires just a little bit more guidance on how we're supposed to collaborate. And then usually over time, I found that when you put heavy facilitation in, it starts to build these norms and then you can kind of relax it over time. So for example, one of the rules I put in in for critiques is that everyone has to ask a question for the first five minutes before people can give suggestions. And if you put that rule into place for five or six sessions, then you can kind of relax that rule and people will naturally be more inquisitive about the design, the process, they'll ask questions. And it's not the rule anymore, but it's just a habit that people have built. So my guess is as we're switching more to remote work, having a little extra heavy facilitation will help people build those habits. Yeah, I could have used this conversation a couple of weeks ago. I did kind of right when we had started working remote as a team, we had to do a brainstorm about sort of some upcoming work that we wanted to do and kind of like a big challenge that we wanted to take on. And I realized we got on the phone and I was like, I haven't done any prep. I was sort of in real time realizing that like I needed to be much more prescriptive about what we were going to do. And there was like engineers and designers and PMs and we were all kind of like, wait, how does this work? What do we do? So yeah, I I can definitely see how spending more time up front to figure out what you want to do is probably even more important now. Absolutely. So I want to switch topics a little bit to another thing that we've talked about because I think along this theme of, you know, understanding how to do your work better and how to like measure your work, we had talked a little bit before about over-measurement. So I'm curious to hear from you, what do you mean by over-measurement and where are you seeing that trend kind of popping up? Yeah, it's interesting to think about the work that we do. We're always trying to have some kind of impact on on the business or the customer, the experience. And some of the work that we do will be very easy to measure. Let's say we're going to change some copy on a home page, a landing page, and we hope that the conversion rate will go up. Yeah, we can like A-B test that. It's actually, the harder thing is probably figuring out what the copy should be. And it's a lot easier to measure it. But then there's the flip of that. There's things that are very hard to measure, but actually pretty easy to do. These might be small UI improvements here or there, or making something just look a little bit cleaner. All those things probably help signal to the customer that your product is high quality, that it can be trusted. All that's really important, but it's very, very hard to measure. You can think about trying to do longitudinal brand awareness studies or satisfaction studies, but it's it's all very latent and disconnected from the actual work. So it would be very, very hard to measure it. So I think the question we have to ask ourselves as product people is, of all the range of things that we could do to make a great product, are we only going to do the ones that are easy to measure? I think that's folly. I think we, at some level, need faith that building a quality product even if we can't measure it, that building a quality product is worthy of the effort, that it helps inspire the people that work for us. It helps our our customers trust us. And even though that stuff is hard to measure, that it's, it's incredibly valuable for the business. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I, I think that we talked a little bit about this before, but I think this is really where for me, storytelling really comes into play. Because I think that if you can't clearly measure something like an experience improvement, or like you mentioned, getting customers to trust your product, if you can tell a really good story with really good examples, you can make the case for the product really clear, even if you can't say, well, don't worry, we're going to move this metric from A to B. I think that's right. The reason why you you focus on quality is is often less an analytical decision and more of an emotional decision. So storytelling makes a lot of sense there. And in my experience, the The biggest thing storytelling does is it brings people to a consistent viewpoint about why you're working on a project. If I was going to present a bunch of features for Google Maps and I just said, like, here's a feature, what do you think? Everyone brings their own experience of using the product to to that that decision. But if you 
use a story you can bring everyone along in the same viewpoint. So I can say, imagine Alice, she commutes every day and she uses Google Maps on her commute. And although that seems odd, 20% of our customers do that. That's wild. But like, look at all the ways that Google Maps doesn't help her on her daily commute because we never really designed it that way. Now, let's look at this feature that I designed. So you're you're bringing everyone into the this imaginary scene about how someone's going to use the feature and it can help them get excited about it. Yeah. Do you have any examples of of coaching maybe PMs or designers or someone who who's not in management or who's not a leader in how to make the case for that type of work? I mean, well, there's one example where I remember it very starkly. I was designing the Google checkout button back when Google was really trying to compete with PayPal. I guess they're they're doing that now as well, but this was a long time ago. As you'd expect all the PMs, the operative word was clickable. How can we make this button scream on the page? It has to sit next to all the other checkout buttons. It has to be clickable, clickable, clickable. And it, it just seemed that no matter what designs I did, I got that same feedback. And so I went to a mentor of mine and, and I asked him, like, what do I do? And he said, just go make the most clickable button you can imagine, everything else be damned, and show that to the team and then talk about your values. So that's what I did. I thought, like, well, what would make people click on this? Well, we'd probably have flames coming out of the button and we'd probably promise a free iPod or something or a chance to win a free iPod. And I designed the most horrendous clickable button ever. And then everyone laughed, which was good. But then we had, had a conversation about, well, what are our goals? Certainly one of our goals is that people notice this button and click on it. But there are other goals that we have. We have to uphold our brand identity, that this is not a cheap value bargain basement brand. This is a trusted brand. We have to signal what experience is ahead so that people aren't let down about what happens next. There's a bunch of other goals that we have. Some of those goals we can very much measure and some of those goals we can't measure. So then what we need to decide as a team is if we have goals that are hard to measure, how do we ensure that we reach them? Often the answer to that is that we we do critique. We make decisions as a group about whether the designs and the decisions we're making will fulfill our goals. I love that. And I think what's interesting is that theoretically, if everyone in the room has spent a lot of time with the user or their problem, the critique is probably actually going to be quite valuable. That room should have enough context to bring really, really good feedback to the, to the team or the person who's sort of working on the thing. Yes, that's the hope. I, I think one of the things that many people have to learn about critique and feedback, including myself, I, I get bit by this all the time, is like imagining that you have all of the context and goals in your head and you're aligned on them and then jumping straight to suggestions. Okay. Someone shows something instead of quickly saying, well, why didn't you do it this way? That assumes a lot. So as much as possible, I encourage teams and, and myself to back way, 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 way up. So first, like, what are we trying to achieve here? And then what are our constraints? And then given that goal and those constraints, is this the right solution? Often we think we're aligned on those early steps and we're not. And when you're not, it just slows you way, way, way down. Yeah, I've been bit by by that a lot. Yeah, we actually had an example of that internally. We, I think the problem that that we struggle with and maybe some other B2B companies might run into this problem is that the market that we're in is not a market that's necessarily very naturally familiar to, say, an engineer or a designer who's working at the company. Like an engineer or designer wouldn't have been a marketing man. So we, we, 
sell a marketing solution, uh, marketing and sales. And so that those people might not have been in those roles. And so there's a big gap between the problem that we're solving in our users and the people who are building the product. And so sometimes we find that there might be people higher up who have backgrounds in that space who are really, really understand a problem so well, they have trouble articulating what they're looking for because it's so obvious to them. Whereas the team that's building it might not have as much natural context. And so we definitely run into that problem when you know, we're jumping sort of forward in a process and we're not really making sure we're all sharing those same assumptions. Yeah. In some ways, though, it can be a blessing when you all think you're the customer. Let's say you all share photos and you think, oh, well, we we all, all have photo sharing needs. Of course, we're the customer. That can blind you a lot easier than, say, designing a product for oncologists where you go, well, I know very little about cancer and I'm not a doctor. So let's go talk to some and figure out what they need. It can be easier in those in those ways as well. But yes, taking those insights about what the customers need and really deeply understanding them is is always a challenge. Yeah. And I also find that one of the things that we've been talking about is that sometimes an insight that might lead you to build something new might be harder for someone to come to if they don't have that sort of cross-cutting knowledge of, you know, if they're more junior and they don't sort of know how the industry works as well as someone who's more senior. And then how do we help everyone understand the factors that that help them get to that insight? Yes, absolutely. I I talk to a lot of user researchers about this because oftentimes folks that are new in user research think their job is to go out and like uncover the customer insights and that's their job. The reality is the job is to get those customer insights into the brains of everyone else on the team so that we can all make good decisions. So it's a a two-part process. First, you have to figure out what the customer needs and then package it up in a way that can easily go into the heads of the people on the team and help them understand that. Oftentimes that's stories. Sometimes that's videos of customers. There's lots of ways to do it. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about, I worked at TripAdvisor for a while and that was definitely a company where it's really easy to confuse yourself with the user because, you know, we all travel, you know, we all book flights, we all book hotels, we go to restaurants. And I remember that was really easy for us to make sort of cut corners and make bad decisions because we assumed we would know what people would do. And speaking of buttons, I just had this, I worked on a project and we did all this work and all this research and we had some thoughts about why we were going to, what we were doing was going to work. And then we interviewed some customers afterwards and they were all like, well, you made the button orange so I could see it. <laughs> that was that was my sort of actual real life example of actually shipping the button and having people be like, oh, well, I noticed it because you changed the color. Yeah. Sometimes it's the smallest things that help. Yeah. Although I wish I hadn't done all the research before that. I should have just known that the button was orange. So I think my one last question for you is, what are you reading or listening to that's helping you stay inspired about what you're working on um, or that you're sharing with your team? I mean, honestly, at the moment, I'm trying to get back into fiction. Yeah, (laughs) I get that. I've been reading the Broken Earth trilogy, which has been which has been really good. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, big fan. In, t- in terms of teams, I've been reading a lot lately books about how teams work together. And Everybody Culture, I think is the name of the book. Mm-hmm. I, I love that one. And then Reinventing Organizations has also been a phenomenal book to really understand how groups of people come together to build things. I think that one more than anything changed my mind about how we work together you work in an office and you see all the ways we work and you and you just think, okay, this is work. This is probably what my parents did. This is probably what my kids will do. This is like what going to an office is like. But when you, when you zoom out and look at the arc of history of humanity, how we came together to build things, there's a tremendous difference in the organizations that have existed over time. And all of those organizations were designed to fit a particular context and a particular type of work that needed to happen. 
over that arc, what's happening essentially is the work is getting more complex. And as work gets more and more complex, you need different organizational structures to support it. And that really made me, me realize that, well, of course, the way we work is changing. It's it's changed so many times before, and it will continue to change. And it's it's made me more of an active participant in thinking about how do we work together? Let's say the OKR system that they use, you know, the goal setting system or or some of the management practices from the Industrial Revolution, are those still applicable today? And if not, what should our processes be? What should our practices and values be in order to support the type of work that's that we need to get done in this in this organization? So yeah, I just love that book as a as a way to bring us all into active participation in how we work. Yeah, that's interesting. That's one of the things that surprised me the most about going from sort of an individual contributor, product manager into a product lead and now a product director. Like the amount of time I spend thinking about not just the product, but also product in relation to other functions and then how we organize as a team. Like to me, that's sort of all becoming part of how we build the right thing is is like also the org chart. Absolutely. Like I have to think about designers in their career. And this is just like a a great tip for product managers working with designers is to really try to understand like where they are developmentally in their career and then what their motivations are. Sometimes early on, you'll find the mercenaries, the people that are like, I'll just do whatever you say, just pay me. <laughs> and that's fine. And then usually people often graduate to kind of the I'm building things kind of for my own ego. Like I want to look good in the eyes of other designers in the design community. A lot of uh, agency work kind of happens in that realm. Like I, I want to uh, be recognized for my design work. And then often you kind of graduate to fighting for the user, sort of like, I went out and talked to customers and no one here understands what they need. You all just want to make more money and I'm going to like make the experience better for them. We're fighting for the user. That's definitely a phase and, and comes with its own motivations. But then eventually, as you mentioned, those motivation gives way to deeper understanding about what it means to be in an organization. Part of that is sustainability, that unless we survive as an organization, we can't continue to deliver value for customers. So we have to make money somehow. We have to survive. And then beyond that, the only way that we accomplish all the things that we can is by building a great team that works well together, that you stop worrying so much about the product and start worrying about the team that builds the product. And that's exactly where you're at. Yeah, I just thought it was something that I think has definitely surprised me about sort of my role and how that, that role changes as you sort of grow in your career. Absolutely, yeah. It's funny, I think the further you go, you realize that it is really just all about the people and that by finding teams to work with that are enjoyable, it, it just it just makes it amazing. I love working with my team at Range. Yeah, I agree. I think that definitely back in the day, maybe pre and maybe right post going to business school, I was sort of more, definitely more in the mercenary category of like, let me go build the coolest thing and like do the right thing and, you know, get the right job. And now it's like, all I care about is that I enjoy the people that I work with and that we're working well together and that it's kind of all humming because that's when it's the most fun. Yeah. All right, Brayden. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking some time to chat. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. 